Hello and welcome everyone to another InventRight live stream. My name is Andrew Krause. I'm one of the co-founders here at InventRight. And you're going to be spending an entire hour with me answering your questions about licensing your inventions so you can receive royalties from large companies. So that's what licensing is. You rent or lease your product, which is called licensing, to a large company. And they have to pay you royalties. Usually it's quarterly, every three months, on your invention. You don't need to raise money. You don't need employees. And you don't need to have any existing distribution at all. Uh, you don't need a patent. A provisional patent application is just fine. And quite often, you don't even need a prototype. You can show the benefit of your product in a sell sheet and or a video. That's all that a lot of our students need to license their product. Now, I'm not saying some of our students don't have uh, a prototype, but a lot of them don't. And they can do it with a virtual prototype and a sell sheet. So um, if you guys can uh, thank for those of you watching this, if you could smash the like button down below, if you can subscribe, click on the notifications button. That's the way you can say thank you to me for spending a whole hour to answer your guys' questions. Also, you'll get notified of future live streams. I do this every Monday at 4 o'clock Pacific time. This can be 7 Eastern. Um, so it'll remind you to come on, come on over, get some more free help. All right. The other thing that I always remember when I get a legal type question like halfway through is to say this disclaimer, which anything I share with you today should not be considered legal advice. Please consult your attorney if you're looking for legal advice. There you go. I covered it right at the beginning. Um, so let's just jump in, guys. It always takes a while for people to flow in. Um, we usually have five times the number of people, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes in. And uh, looks like we got a bunch of questions already, though. So this is going to be great. So again, if you're just joining, my name is Andrew Krause. I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key 23 years ago, and we've been coaching and mentoring inventors to license and sell their products for royalties without having to start a business for the last 23 years. We know what we're doing, and we're here to help you guys. Of course, we have a coaching and mentoring program, um, which I don't speak of that often on here unless somebody asks about it. And then we also have a lot of free resources, so make sure to go to inventright.com. I'll type it in here. Inventright.com. Inventright.com. And there we go. All right. So you guys can check that out and then go to the free resources button. If you're on the web, um, if you're on your, your uh, computer, you know, and you go to the website, you'll see in the upper right-hand corner free resources. I think it's a little bit different on the phone, but you guys can find it. Um, you can probably just type in InventRight free resources and find the page. Um, I've never done that, but I'm sure that'll work. All right. Uh, Chavez says, can you give the advantages and disadvantages of fulfillment centers? You guys don't hear me say this very often. No, because that's not what we do, Chavez. What we do is licensing. You don't need a fulfillment center. When when you're licensing that big company, it's their distribution. So it's going to be their fulfillment center, their manufacturing, their money, their workforce, their everything. And then they pay a royalty every quarter. So um, we're experts at uh, licensing. So I can't really cover the advantages and disadvantages of fulfillment centers because that's for somebody that's venturing, which is just a fancy way of saying make it and sell it yourself. That's what venturing is. So there are a lot of experts in that. I would probably Google that, but this 
uh, whole stream and InventRight and our coaching and our mentoring and the whole channel is about licensing. So I don't have an answer for you there. I'm not an expert at the advantages and disadvantages of a fulfillment center because none of our, we call our clients students and none of our fans either need fulfillment centers if they're going to be licensing. It's just not my area of expertise. Um, Waleed said, hi, Andrew, how can I find a licensing attorney? Can I ask the licensor to pay the fees of my licensing attorney? Okay, so first off, um, you got to be really careful about when to use a licensing attorney. They're great, but when to use them. So for example, with our students, when one of our students get interest, they have a licensing coach and they get really serious interest from a company. They're going to send that student of ours, the inventor, to our negotiation coach, Paul. And Paul is going to guide them through the negotiation. Now, Paul is not a licensing attorney, thank God, because there's a lot of back and forth with the company before you get to a licensing contract. An attorney is an attorney. They're not a salesperson. They're not experts at closing licensing deals. We are. So we send our students to Paul and Paul helps them with those discussions. There might be a discussion about, yeah, we need to see if we can get this made at a reasonable price. We need this. We have a concern about that. And Paul knows how to guide our students. Licensing attorneys don't know how to deal with that. That's, they don't see that as their job. It's not their job. And they don't know how to deal with that. So definitely every time if you got interest and then they, and you got to do some of that stuff, the back and forth with the company about getting some quotes, talking about the various issues, that's not a contractual thing. A licensing attorney should only be involved in contracts, in my biased opinion, um, unless they have our experience, which I haven't met one that has that yet. Um, so don't contact a licensing attorney the second you get interest You'll just get a giant bill and then they'll proceed to kill the deal for you or they'll guide you in properly. Um, if they're good, they'll say, no, look, I do contracts. I don't help with negotiations and um, I don't that's not what I do with the manufacturing and this and that, you know. Um, now. Our negotiation coach, Paul, you've gone back and forth with the company on the phone and then five or six emails and another phone call. And that's how it goes for quite a while. And then eventually he's gotten you to the contract. Now, usually what he'll do is he'll ask our student to ask them to send their contract and them and their attorney will send the contract. And then Paul, our negotiation coach, will bloody it behind the scenes and say, OK, here's five things missing. Here's three things need to be changed. Oh, Paul, are they trying to screw me? He's like, no, this is normal stuff. Every deal's different. What they send is different, but don't don't worry about that, you know, and he'll then guide you to tell them what to change and them and their attorney will make the change. So not only this isn't the main reason for doing it, but it's a side benefit. Not only does it save you money, but it dramatically improves the chances that you're going to kill a deal because this is what licensing attorneys do. They nitpick the deal to death because. The more nitpicky they are, the more billable hours they are. And guess what? Attorneys are about billable hours. And then the more money they make, but then they piss off the company. They still send you a big bill and you've got a dead deal. And the attorney is like, oh, they were, you know, that was unreasonable. And, and licensing attorneys will have you do things that are unreasonable. They're not level headed like us. We would never let our students get into a bad deal, but we also talk to them about and we take our time with our students. We're not billing them hourly. 
they get unlimited negotiation help. So we have got all no, no ulterior motives on racking up those billable hours, okay? So we, we go, well, here's their perspective. Here's our perspective. Let's give on this. And I'm not saying no licensing attorney will give in on things, but usually the inventor has this misperception, like they're going to fight for me. And the attorney plays into that because, yeah, I'm fighting for you. I'm going to get you the best deal. But they end up killing the deal. So the way that we use licensing attorneys is when Paul gets a deal to 95% done, he's told the inventor what needs to be changed. He sends it back to them and their attorney. They, they change it. Now, you're not signing anything yet. So there's no risk there. And then they send it back. And then we, Paul and our negotiation coach and the student will debate about what is good to push for, what's not. And ultimately, it's up to the student, right? And then when a deal gets 95% done, Paul's going to say, this deal is 95% done. You need a licensing attorney now. That's when you need them. Just for an hour or two on a, most deals, there might be some deals, there might be more, to dot the I's and cross the T's. Change this word, change this sentence. You know, I noticed that these two clauses conflict you know, a little bit. That might be problematic. Let's fix that. So that's the way we use licensing attorneys. And it costs the inventor like a fraction of what it would normally cost because there's not much for them to do once we get done with it. But we are not going to let one of our students sign a deal without a licensing attorney looking at it because we're not attorneys. But we, we, you know, you could get interest from five companies. We guide you through every single deal and it wouldn't cost you a dime more than their, our mentoring and coaching program. Um, because we're guiding you through the process, okay? Uh, and that's the technique also that we teach our students to do when they're not with us anymore. Get deals to 95% done or 90% done, and then have an attorney review it. To think that an attorney is going to be a deal closer for you is the funniest thing I've ever heard. It's just not the way it works. So don't, don't think that. Um, let's see. So that was, uh, Waleed's first question. How can I, okay. Didn't really fully answer his question. How can I find a licensing attorney? Well, you can Google it. I mean, if you're a, a student of ours and you're at that 95% mark, Paul will give you a couple attorneys that we know that will are willing to work for an hour or two. Most are, are not willing to do that. They want to get like three or four grand out of you. They want to get more than we charge for our entire system. And they're just doing that thing on the tail end, you know? Um, so, you know, you can Google it, you can find a licensing attorney, but the more important piece of advice, Waleed, which is classic invent right, you think you need something and I'm telling you, you don't. I'm telling you, if you think every time you get a little interest from a company, you call a licensing attorney and they're going to close a deal for you, you're going to have done a lot of work for naught because this isn't a solid statistic. I'm just kind of making it up, but this is about my feeling. If every time one of our students got interest, we said, go to a licensing attorney instead of go to our negotiation coach, Paul, they would probably kill like 80% of the deals that he helps them close. So you're just wasting your time with licensing. Every time you, you wrangle a licensing attorney and pay them a ton of money to close the deal for you. And it's not about saving the money. It's more about them not killing the deal. It's about both. But imagine you get some traction. Imagine this scenario, which is not uncommon. Our students, we, we guide them to reach out to 20 or 30 companies, not two or three. And so they let us say you reach out to 30 and they get interest, initial interest from five. And you're under the misperception that whenever I get initial interest, well, okay, they showed a little interest. So I was going to turn you to close the deal for me. <laughs> Guys, that's not going to work. Um, not going to work. Uh, but if Paul, our negotiation coach, is helping you through that, 
And or in the future, once you've been through a few deals, you're like, I can do this. I know how to go back and forth with the company. And only when it gets really far along, I understand the basing clauses in the license contract. We teach our students to do that. And then if it's far along, then I'll get a licensing attorney. Right. But you need to you need to learn that skill. Very, very important. Um, the other thing was, can I ask the licensor to pay the fees of my licensing attorney? Um, no. You can ask him to pay to give you an advance on royalties for a patent, but to say, I want you to pay the fees for my licensing attorney. No, I would just ask for some upfront money and you can use that money towards paying for a licensing attorney. So do you need a licensing attorney? Yes. Our approach is you just need them when the deal is more or less done. Don't ever sign a licensing agreement without a licensing attorney going over it and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. But you either need a mentor that can guide you through a negotiation um, or you do say you do it yourself once you become educated on how to do that, once you have some experience. Okay. Um, okay, this was an interesting question. People are always surprised by this answer, but um, Mike says, what is your opinion about how, how to or getting in QVC and HSN? So QVC and HSN, they're basically um, TV channels, if you want to call it that. They're online as well. And they're just basically an electronic retailer. So instead of Walmart or Target, they're QVC and HSN. And they own each other now, by the way. I forget which one bought which. I think QVC bought HSN. I'm not 100% sure. But it doesn't really matter. But so you don't license to QVC and HSN. QVC and HSN is like a Walmart. Just like you don't license to Walmart, you license to companies that sell products at Walmart. Same deal with QVC and HSN. So if you believe your product would be really great on those channels, you know, where they're constantly selling product all the time, there's a certain demographic, usually female, a little bit older. That's the, that's the bulk of the demographic then you would license to companies that are selling there. So you could go on QVC and HSN and look at companies selling kitchen gadgets. If you got a kitchen gadget and you license to one of them, they're probably on QVC and HSN because you see them on there. And they're also here and here and here too. So the, the, the way to get your product on QVC or HSN that is risk adverse, that's using the licensing approach is license to companies that are on there. Um, and people don't really kind of understand that. They don't understand the difference between um, a retailer and a manufacturer that sells at a retailer. But I just explained it to you, so you should know now. Um, so Waleed said, hi, Andrew, if I license my patented idea, does the licensor's name, will it appear on my patent as an assignee? No, it will not. So when you license a product, you do not want to assign it to the company. You want to keep it in your name. And people get this confused all the time. You got the patent here and you got the licensing agreement here. The licensing agreement will give the company the right to utilize the patent. Or if you decide not to file a patent, some companies don't care, just the product itself. You don't, you don't have to make, you don't have to have a patent in order to license a product. You don't have you, you don't have to upgrade your provisional to a full utility to do a licensing deal. The licensing deal says it's based on um, just the product itself. That's one way to do it. Or you can base it on the patent. And if you can get away with just the product itself, it doesn't matter what patents are. They still need to pay you regardless. Like I can do that. People are shocked all the time by that. So um, so no, you do not want it to be assigned. So if under the licensing agreement. 
they're not performing, first of all, you're going to talk to them. Hey, guys, like you didn't hit this this milestone. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. What's going on? Can I help? Maybe we could do this or that. And you give them an opportunity to make it right. You don't like just slit their throat the second they're not selling as much as you want them to sell based on the licensing agreement, right? Um, but let's say it, you've done that already and there is just, they're just not performing and you want to take it back. Well, you can notify them. Usually a sell-off period for them selling the product off. You can notify them and then, you know, that they're not complying with the licensing contract. And now it's yours immediately, you know? What under the terms of the contract, of course. So you don't need to fight with them to get it reassigned to you. That's just a giant. There's no reason to do that. Okay. There's no reason to assign the patent to them. And we fight tooth and nail for our students to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, let's see. Hi, Andrew. Good day. And thank you once again. The question from Matt is when submitting to companies with submission portals and they ask you to describe your idea in 500 characters or less, do you use the whole 500 characters? So first of all, I think it's freaking ridiculous. I could see, I'll tell you why I think some companies may do that. I think it's stupid. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. So when they don't, now they don't give you a place to upload you know, a sell sheet or link to a video or something. That, that's fine. Some of them don't do that. But when they say, you know, just describe your invention, that is the worst marketing piece I could possibly imagine. So imagine what we got our students to do is a sell sheet, a one-page sell sheet. So it's a PDF. It's one page. It has a benefit statement at the top, some bullet points, some pictures. And it's basically an advertisement. So they see it and they're either interested or they aren't. So it's kind of like, more or less kind of the same stuff that's on the outside of the package. That's kind of what a sell sheet is to a certain extent. That's a great sales tool, okay? Describing your product in 500 characters is just ridiculous, you know? Now, you could take some of those benefit statements and put them a benefit statement, a few bullet points, but they're not seeing the picture. They're just seeing a bunch of writing. So I would go around what they're trying to tell you to do. And there's, there's uh, services like Dropbox, so dropbox.com. It's free with the, with the free version. It should give you plenty of bandwidth, only if you throw tons of documents in there do you have to pay for it. Um, and I have a Dropbox, a paid Dropbox, but you can use the free account or some other service. You drop it in there, and then it's, an on, it's online, but only with the people with the link can see it. So then you copy the link to that document in your Dropbox, and you put that link in that 500 characters or whatever, for, sorry, my nose is itching, for, for submitting to the company. So you've just gone around it. You say sell sheet, here's the link to my sell sheet, to my one page sell sheet that you'll understand in, in 20, 30 seconds right away. And you put the link, boom, got right around that. Because writing about your product for up to 500 characters is a joke. That's a complete and utter joke. Now, you could also have an unlisted YouTube video, basically a private YouTube video that's unlisted. And you could send that link too if you had a video. So this is the way you get around it, okay? So, uh, but I, now, okay, let's say I've talked to a few companies where they're like, well, we kind of want to know what area it's in so we can say, no, that's not right for us. Well, but what if they're intrigued enough? 
So always send a link to a sell sheet, use Dropbox or another service and or an unlisted YouTube video. Okay. Instead, don't don't write in those little boxes. They'll be tempted to click on it and take a look. You can say something slightly intriguing, but it just gives them a reason to remove you. And I don't really take companies that seriously that do that. It tells me that they're not that serious about receiving submissions. See the little a red flag a little bit. Um, I'd, I'd also, I'd rather that you went to the marketing managers at those companies rather than to um, through their portal. Through we call, we've been calling Stephen and myself. We've been calling them portals. They're really not portals. They're just submission pages on a company's site. A portal might be going to a lot of places, right? So somebody mentioned that to me the other day. I'm like, you're right. It's really not a portal. We talk about it as a portal, but it's really a submission page on a company's site. It's better if you go through their LinkedIn, go directly, or go directly via email. Um, Emilio said, when is the best time to ask a company to sign an NDA? How would you ask them to sign an NDA? I got in contact with a product manufacturer and found his email through research, reached out, and he sent the link. He sent link. Okay, found his email. Okay, I don't know what that means. The link is a product submission form. Okay. And they ask about the benefits of the technology, explaining, again, in three sentences, can this link be trusted to submit my product? Um, you look at the company. Look the company up, Emilio. If there aren't a bunch of complaints about the company, and file a provisional patent application. But our students file a provisional application, then they start submitting privately to companies. If you ask them to sign an NDA, and I don't know who told you that an NDA makes sense, in the United States, most companies won't sign your NDA if they don't know what the product is yet. After, if you want to share some little details, they might set it because now they know. But imagine, like you're saying, I can't tell you what I'm going to send you. Whatever I send you, you need to keep confidential. It's not a reasonable thing to ask. Because what if it conflicts with something else they're doing? But if you just submit it and you show patent pending because you filed a $75 provisional patent and you're creating an email paper trail, that to me is, is um, that's the way that our students approach it. Okay. So, you know, usually people that are telling you to send NDAs, you're going you're gonna to get a bloody forehead. You're going to be beating your head up against a brick wall. That's not legal advice. I'm not telling you what to do there. I'm just telling you our students file a provisional patent and they privately send it via email. Um, now, I think your concern is kind of valid. There's this submission form. You're like, who's my contact? I don't blame you for not liking that. So if you're a little hesitant about that, use LinkedIn and, and approach some marketing managers. Now you got the person's name and now you submit to them. It is a little weird submitting on a form on their site, you know, definitely. But the explain it in three sentences thing, that's a joke, you know? And again, I would link to the sell sheet. If you're going to do that, I wouldn't, um, and the sell sheet's not public. You're putting your private Dropbox, okay? Um, let's see. Thanks for smashing the like button there, Hill, or Hill Dog, as your handle is. Um, Musta said, uh, Andrew, when we look for potential licensees, if we have no manufacturer's options anymore, is it okay to reach out to huge Amazon sellers or websites? What is the average royalty rate with online sellers? So first of all, websites quite often are just online retailers. So, you know, you're not going to reach out to them anyway. But um, Amazon sellers, we had a company on 
This is our Bridging the Gap meeting. And this is just for our students. And they can't share the name of the company because that's private because for our students, for paying students. And he was one of the top, he's, he said, he, I'm one of the top 10 sellers on Amazon. I did a double take, like five minutes later, I asked him, I said, so you said that earlier. Are you really? He's like, yes. I'm like, holy crap. So that has changed. You know, back in the day, not that long ago, we we're like, the brick and mortar was the the, the most solid, right? Like the, the they're in major retailers, right? And then the Amazon, it's like, ah, you know, there's a bunch of people piddling around over there. Not the case anymore. There's some major, major resellers on there. Now, you're not going to license to a Chinese company that's just dumping their stuff onto Amazon. That's not the company you want to license to. Half the time, it's easy to figure that out because the, the Chinglish on there is just terrible. And it's like, why aren't these people like at least paying somebody to proofread this? It's just crazy. Um, but you don't want to license to them. But you research them. And if they're a top seller on Amazon, and you know, you might find that same company has distribution at brick and mortar too. But they might just be Amazon. And there are plenty of companies that are big enough that are just on Amazon that you can license to now. So perfectly relevant point. Um, absolutely. So what is the average royalty rate with online sellers? I don't think it's any different. Sometimes it could be even more because if you're getting, if they're selling direct and they're not, so usually you get the royalty rate on the wholesale price. So and don't think this is more beneficial. It all works out in the end. But when you license the company XYZ and they sell at Walmart, you're getting your royalty rate on the wholesale price, not the retail price. But sometimes I've seen our students do deals where the company's selling a certain amount wholesale and they get the same figure retail where the, the company's selling direct to consumer and they get that same five, six percent royalty rate for retail too, which is quite a bit more. Sometimes it's double the price. It's kind of crazy. Um, so if a company, to give you a point of reference, was selling all direct to consumer and they wanted to beat you down that royalty rate, but they have massive volume, I'd probably be okay with that because normally you're getting it on the wholesale rate. And if they're okay with going the royalty rate, so you always want to identify, are we talking retail here or are we talking wholesale? You can't do a licensing deal with a company that sells to major retailers and do it at the retail price. It's impossible. You guys know how it works in the United States now. I mean, everything's on clearance or on sales or this or that. You can never track that, but you can track what they sell it to the retailer for. And that's why it's usually done on the wholesale. But if they're selling direct to consumer, it could be done on the retail and that can be tracked directly too. But you can't track, you can't say I want it on the retail and the company you license to is then selling at Walmart. They're supposed to track what they ended up selling it at retail for. That's not going to happen. Okay. Um, <laughs> Wade said, Wade is one of our students actually. Um, always great to see you and be here. Can't wait to hear you talk about having delusions of grandeur. That's always my favorite part. You know, what what my that's what he's talking about, guys, is when you're licensing, you can have delusions of grandeur and you're not delusional. Because if that company can do, it depends on the product, 50,000 units, 500,000 units a year, whatever is normal for that kind of category in that company, you can do because they can do it. So you can think like, I want this to reach like millions of people and over the years of them selling it, you can totally do that. But if you try to sell it yourself, that's like brutal. That's just very, very difficult. So that's what I, 
always refer to that you can have delusions of grandeur when you're licensing and you're not delusional because whatever you can get a royalty on whatever that big company can do and they can do big things right so that's that's what uh wade's referring to um melvin said hey andrew if your idea is specific to let's say the oil field and you know that only 10 companies will be big buyers of your product would it be better to venture if you're able to okay specific okay it's the oil field 10 buyers, would it be better to venture? It depends. So as you know, royal licensing is about a couple things. It's about, what does it say? You know, I noticed it says chat disconnected. And then also the number of users hasn't gone up. That's really weird. Normally we're at way more users than we are. YouTube just keeps glitching. That drives me nuts. Um, and so the chat says, those of you listening, it says it's disconnected. Uh, please wait while we try to reconnect. Huh. Um, I don't know. After I answer these questions here, I'll probably do a refresh. Hopefully it won't muck up the whole live stream. And we'll see if that fixes it so I can get more of your questions. But um, so licensing, the question that Melvin was saying, would I be better selling it myself if it's very limited market? And so... The answer is basically, you know, when, when you get royalties, it's on three things. It's the royalty rate, the price of the product, and the volume being sold. So now, so then you, you take the royalty rate times the price of the product plus the volume being sold. Are they going to sell 5,000 units, 50,000 units, half a million units? And so if this is on an oil field product, Melvin, and you're literally only going to sell 10 of these ever, probably not a licensing deal. Probably better to venture, but if the price is five hundred thousand dollars and you're only going to sell ten, well, that's five million dollars in sales. That might make sense. So but you can run the royalty rate times the price of the product times the volume being sold and go. Well, that's if I license this, that would what my royalty would be. You know, in the end, how much money would I be earning? If you're like, I'm not happy with that, you know, you might be better to venture it, but. What if venturing this is very costly and you couldn't do that? Well, then you could still license it. But if it's a super niche product, super low volume and lower price, that's a problem. If it's like an insanely high price and low volume, it still might work. So, But those are the three factors, royalty rate, price of the product, and the amount being sold when you're evaluating um, what you want to do there as far as if you want to venture or license. But because just because you're like, oh, I would earn more if I sold it myself doesn't mean you should do that, right? Because what if what if you need to spend $300,000 just to get that going and you might not be able to, you know? So it's, you know, how hard would it be to venture it? So, you know, you got to take a look at that too. Um, let me let me click refresh here and hopefully that'll fix the chat here. I don't think it will, but uh, changes may not be saved. Okay, I'm gonna reload this and hopefully it doesn't end the stream here, guys. If it does, it does. Because the number of users is just fixed, it's not going up. I can tell people aren't 